0: Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly movie podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor and chief critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our editor at large. And and we've got a lot of movies to talk about this week. I have to say, we have so many movies to talk about. We don't even have time to talk about all the significant movies opening this week. There are a lot. We've seen. So, hey, that's kind of a good thing, even if they're not all slam dunks. There's plenty to talk about. We're basically in a weird kind of summer movie season, in yeah, a way. Yeah, it well, it's started. a lot of indie
1: stuff and, and some, some studio stuff. Um, and some Streaming studio stuff, stuff that ended up on Netflix. Uh, you yeah,
0: know. which would love to be called a studio in the context of this conversation, I'm sure. You know,
1: I got into an argument with uh, Ryan Latanzio about this. Uh, he was writing some story where he referred to all the streamers as major studios. And I said, Brian, you know, major studio goes back to the days when there were actual lots and studios. Well, and you had the, the studios, majors and the
0: minors. I mean, the, the studios was great, that owned
1: yeah. movie theaters were the majors. And yeah. people have taken, obviously, it has adapted so that people refer to major studios. But I think for the most part, that became the big studios like Universal, Paramount, warner brothers and so on and and now and it it, it, in in fact disney was never one of the major studios because it didn't have uh theaters but of course it is now but now people are talking about the streamers as major studios and if you were studios and if you were going to look at um the mpaa members netflix is a member of the mpaa They're so in maybe all, in all the clubs. Netflix is a major <laughs> studio, but I don't use the evolves. word major unless it's a real studio.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're, you're old school that way. Well, before we get into all this stuff, we do have to acknowledge that while last week we were thrilled to pretend that Oscar season was behind us, we now have another reason to return to this conversation, and it has to do with our quote unquote friends at the HFPA. Because the Golden Globes—I don't know if they're officially canceled yet—but they're certainly pretty. There will damn not close. be
1: a Golden Globes in 2022. This coming year will not have a Golden Globes show. Not on the air. No. no. Not happening. Mm-mm.
0: It's over. maybe in
1: 2023, but the the, the future there's <laughs> there's no de- there's no question that the future of this organization the HFPA, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, is in serious, serious uh, doubt. What an avalanche,
0: um, too. The last few months and then weeks, it was like one moment after another where you think, "Okay, now is the time where the organization gets its act together and at least figures out a way to message that it's turned a corner. And instead, it turns the opposite corner. It just got worse and worse. You know, these these offensive emails from members who hadn't really been active in, for years, and the, the Phil Burke the was the eight-time
1: yeah. president. He was in his 80s, and he had he can't he hailed from none no uh, he hailed from South Africa, <laughs> and that woman who went on of Margaret Gardner, who went on the Oscars to ask Daniel Kaluuya. Uh, a question about working with Regina King, who was the director of a different movie than <laughs> the one he won the Oscar for. Uh, he won the Oscar for a movie Didn't directed by case. Shaka King. Um, yeah. So this woman was from South Africa, and and it's just so embarrassing. It, it just they made their own errors over time. But what I realized talking to publicists, there are publicists who who seem to argue for the continued existence of this organization just out of habit. I've heard a lot of
0: arguments in favor and people don't want to say them publicly, but they range from people saying things like this is actually good for independent film. It's good for all kinds of different movies because it it just, there's a very clear Path where you know you can sort of exploit the globes to gain a certain level of credibility or visibility in award season. And,
1: and it's very it was hard Harvey Weinstein. That. Harvey Weinstein who kind of figured out figured it out. There was a woman named Nadia Bronson back in the day. They were the ones who figured out how to play the the, the HFPA and how to manipulate them and wow them and get their movies, you know, into Oscar contention as a result. So it was a a game that everybody played and they were happy to play it. Guess who wasn't happy to play it? The stars. That's what I realized, is that when Scarlett Johansson complained about all the, I've been to a couple of junkets where there were HFPA people there, like in Cannes and stuff and, and other places. And they're embarrassing. They're yeah, really, absolutely. really embarrassed, and, and the and, stars,
0: I think, are embarrassed that they're be- basically told you have to go shake hands and be nice to these people. I mean, right. I never went they to don't one of those events, them- but... I will say I've seen, star, I've had interviews with people where it's like, oh, and then after this thing, you got to go do that HFPA thing. Like that's a separate, you you have to go enter into that bubble and play the little game and then leave and try to be a little and, bit more And they've all done it that.
1: and they've all been the recipients of awards and they played the game and they thought it was worth playing. I find it fascinating that be, it was the press agents that created the coalition of 100 uh, agencies they wouldn't have necessarily done that if their clients hadn't wanted them to do it right. and pressured them to do it. People like Elliot Page, uh, people like Scarlett Johansson, people like that. And and IDPR very much uh, behind it. And because
0: it served their agenda until it didn't because the, they do what the talent wants. And if the talent comes in, they had to have that kind of reaction to, to stick to kind of stick to force that change. But the other thing that's really fascinating is that those, I mean, who's auditing those agencies for their issues with diversity? I mean, HFPA, their argument that, in, that I've seen in some places reported, you know, on background or whatever is that, you know, we're being sort of uh, used, as, we're sort of scapegoated that there's a tremendous diversity problem in all these organizations and all of these PR agencies would be good to look at themselves. Why are we being singled out? Well, you're being singled out because you should be singled out. I mean, you represent a certain problem and if you can't fix that problem, then you shouldn't have the kind of platform that you have. So maybe the agencies are doing that too, they just don't have the same platform. But it's a, but it's fascinating to see the kind of back and forth sense of frustration going on right now it's not like a uniform thing
1: i assumed i assumed that everybody was playing the game you know perhaps cynically i didn't realize the degree to which so many people were angry and pissed off and tired of playing the game and NBC was gonna, was was sort of the last holdout. I mean, they were putting a lot of pressure on the HFPA. The HFPA simply was dragging its feet and taking its time and not recognizing how much work they had to do. And everybody got very frustrated with them and piled on and then Tom Cruise, gives up his three globes, which he could care less about. It's not like uh, he's a, he gives a shit about that. He he's at at, at the moment that he's promoting, you know, mission impossible. Yeah. At that moment, he happy, he he makes it, you know, they all know what they're doing, Eric. They are all very savvy about where the momentum is, where the play is, you know, ScarJo knows, Uh, you know, how she's how she's going to be coming across. And it's all very calculated. She
0: she didn't surprise me. The Tom Cruise thing was interesting to me because he didn't, you know, make a big statement or something like that. All you, all you had to do was just have that information out there that those globes had gone. I couldn't, off the top of my head, remember which Golden Globes he even won. I mean, maybe, maybe that's the kind of trivia that you internalize. Born on the fourth of
1: July. There you go. So it goes back a ways. Like you probably hadn't looked
0: at that thing in a couple of decades. But okay, so that was easy. But it's no, everybody a
1: made fun of them. Everybody. I mean, let's be honest. There are people who are legitimately strong. Um, Powerful journalists, at, at, at decent uh, publications. Uh, you know, there's a there's a handful of them. <laughs> Most of them, uh, you know. So then the question was, who who's going to replace it? And everybody's talking about the Critics' Choice Awards, um, which sort of could fill the gap. It's a much smaller uh, platform, so it'd be a question at at the CW of of whether it would it would move somewhere else. And and you and I are both members of of the Critics' Choice Awards, and it's not like um, I think you're probably more proud of your membership at the New York Film Critics than you are. But I vote in <laughs> the both Critics choice, but I vote in both. And the the award show uh, is, 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 is actually, I think, a lot more legitimate than the Golden Globes and whatever people want to say about the swag that goes around. The swag goes around to every uh, junket journalist. It goes around to every awards journalist. It's hard Where to get
0: off of these lists. To, it's, Even if you don't have to want learn it. How to, you know, I, <laughs> yeah, it's all I part actually of the business. tell them not I mean, to send me the stuff. I mean, you this know, is it, an extension of what the challenge of being an entertainment journalist in general is that I encounter a lot of people who kind of get into this stuff because they started going to junkets and had no journalism background, had no professional experience and never really thought about that division between You know, when you're basically operating at at somebody on somebody else's expense budget and therefore compromised to some degree and how to assess those questions. So I think some people are more sensitive to those things than others. And when you have a wider pool of journalists, I think there's probably a broader sense that some people are actually doing their jobs well as opposed to like a very narrow set of people. So what HFPA Joey Berlin is.
1: at the CCA said was that in order to get into the CCAs and they have or you know added some international journalists in the last few months who didn't get into the HFPA, and they're welcoming people to apply. as long as they've got a, a legitimate outlet with decent number of, of uh, viewers and or readers, they are uh, open, but they're not going to let anyone come in who doesn't have a legitimate, big outlet.
0: Yeah, I mean we we've applied. I mean there, it's certainly a process getting into it, like any like most legitimate voting organizations. So I I, I assume in this inc- climate there will be even more of a, a sort of attentiveness to the need to be discerning about who votes. I mean there'll still be a lot of extra extra voices around. I'm sure you could scrutinize that to some degree. Well, they're, they're up be to 450.
1: Diverse. They're up yeah. to 450. They've got 25 percent people of color. Yeah, you know, it's a whole way away from what the HFPA is.
0: Of course, and if if this was to quote unquote take the place of the Globes, there would have to be a, a a greater investment in what that actually means, right? Does They're going to have up? to
1: get a bigger outlet. I mean, even the HFPA, uh, I think it was TBS or something like that that they were on, and then they moved up to NBC, and it, it was, was a huge leap. Huge huge right. leap the and that's journey. where the big bucks came well, in. Well, I have to tell the $40 you, 40 I mean, million dollar exactly. Uh, payload. Exactly.
0: All of a sudden the Globes was just was an establishment event and very a lot of people were knew about it because of that, but they didn't really know much else beyond it and didn't question that. But I remember the the two years that I spent a couple years back chairing New York Film Critics Circle was fascinating to put on that hat of organizing an awards event during awards season and coordinating with all these people around their globe's travel schedules and thinking about how annoying it was that it was like we might lose xyz because this person can't get on an overnight flight because they have to do something before they fly from the West Coast to the East Coast. I remember I you were like, always
1: coordinating so, with L.A. It was Alabama. really
0: annoying because I was yeah. lo- and then I would look at the globes and I was like, but they're so bad. Why is everyone <laughs> and, You know, and, and, and we because and of the platform no because of the cameras eh? we had, we had we had such a better show. When you think about it, just in terms of the experience and the, the there were drunken charades and so forth. And but the presenters were amazing. The difference was among, I'm sure, other factors we didn't have any cameras in the room and when you put those cameras in the room it just completely changes changes everything exactly look i think the
1: ccas could get there i mean they have a lot of room to grow let's put it that way and and get much much better there are all sorts of issues with the ccas because what happens is because they're on the cw and they're doing a tv show (laughs) every year they do these crazy shenanigans with the time you know it's always about the time crunch and they end up throwing out half the stuff and people would show up from, you know, like John Williams for Lincoln or, or somebody like that wouldn't get up and get their award when they won. Or uh, the, the Sony people had Pedro Almodovar there one year and he didn't get to accept his international award. You know, it, it was really uh, embarrassing for the people that brought major talent to have them not be able to get up on the stage and do their thing. And they do that every year. It's a thing. Great. Sometimes they make them accept it on the carpet, (laughs) you know, uh, uh, on the way in instead of uh, instead. And then they tape it and put it on. It's 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 a little it's a little fly by night. Let's put it that way.
0: Yeah. But let's see what happens, because frankly, I think this provides an additional kind of question mark for the award season to come that'll be fascinating to follow. It'll give us something to dig into. I mean, how will it's this evolve?
1: Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out, but also to think about um, I'm really curious to see what the repercussions of the last Oscars are because there are. Th- I don't know if you've talked to anyone who liked them, but I have. I've talked to people who actually appreciated what Soderbergh was trying to do. Uh, that the, they they, they lot they didn't miss the glitz and the and the craziness and the comedy and the musical numbers. They didn't miss it at all. And, I missed and, uh, the
0: clips. I think a, there there was definitely ambition on display. It was the start of a good idea that just wasn't just wasn't finished. And and so I yeah I.
1: Interesting that Soderbergh sort of sort of I remember I remember the year that James Franco and Ann Hathaway were were oh, hosting, God. co-hosting yes. the one of the great disasters of all time. Part of it was that Franco, in his own mind, however he justified it, he told everybody he was he was working on something at the same time and he really didn't put his whole energy into it at all. He was no- notoriously not checked in and didn't care. And poor of the way. But I mean, Soderbergh it. on some level, I'm shooting a movie while I'm producing the Oscars. Well, excuse me. Right.
0: But he's always shooting a movie while doing 50 other things. So, yeah, but maybe you could have. Yeah,
1: man. Anyway, he, he I'm curious to see if they do a whole pendulum swing in the other direction and go back to somebody like, you know, uh, Jimmy Kimmel hosting or something like that and, and make it funny and, and go for the glitz again, or whether there might there might really be real pressure because of the ratings to get rid of some of those uh, categories.
0: Interesting question, but it is way too early to really dig deep into that one as the meetings are taking place. We're enjoying what, like not new members talking about and stuff. The Dear or... God. Yeah, so let's put that aside because we do have plenty of movies to talk about, including the, the always joyful opportunity to dig into to a universally reviled bomb. <laughs> <laughs> Although I don't know if you could really call it a bomb because when Women on the Window hits Netflix, people could still watch it. I mean, what do you? Women in the
1: Window is is potentially going to be very successful on Netflix. I think I think it's really interesting that the movie has been um, defined before it opens as a bomb,
0: right? When it may have
1: enormous ratings on Netflix.
0: And honestly, I look at
1: this. I look at this movie as sort of a weird last gasp of the old system you know fox 2000 defunct no longer in existence literary pedigree all that kind of thing you know devil wears prada uh all that um you know life of pi very mainstream and literary scott rudin defunct (laughs) (laughs) tainted (laughs) out of business for at least the time being then then you have um uh, Disney you know, shutters the label. Uh, Elizabeth Gabler goes over and works at Sony where she's working on television as well as movies and uh, for the first time, which is the sign of, of the times. And then you have um, a movie that, that if it were to open in theaters today would be a box office disaster. So what better right. way to mitigate that than to sell it during the pandemic to
0: Netflix. Where it had where people will watch it because it's genre because it's got some recognizable stars, people love Amy Adams in particular I would think seeing yeah. just those factors alone. And to be honest with you, I don't think it's a very good movie. I've I've seen a lot worse. I sure. mean it's pretty watchable by 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 a lot of standards. It's it looks pretty. It's got an watchable, interesting Hitchcocky on but- it's it's rear it's a rear window uh too much watered down rear window kind of vibe I, was I would say
1: amazed that they actually put a shot of the movie at the beginning and as if to say hey look that's what we're trying to do yes. here and then, There's and then there are of shots that. of all these other movies mm-hmm. throughout. You know that yeah. were you know similar uh, th- thrillers, noir literal air
0: quotes. Yeah, you exactly.
1: Know? exactly. And I'm like, what? You know, come on. And and probably inserted in the editing room. Probably you know part of the the desperate reshoot editing process that they went through apparently when they realized that the movie was inert. But it's inert for a reason. It's a very derivative, formulaic uh, script it it is it's a weird movie to have in the pandemic because th- this woman is locked in her apartment and you have to try to make it interesting so so they go overboard with all these elaborate sets and colors and and different rooms and 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 you have this woman living in luxury while she's a mess right it's that thing that, where they want to make it look really gorgeous and fabulous and it's she's an not other, letting anyone in yeah, who's it's cleaning overdone. it <laughs> I mean, yeah. all of those all of those sort of realities. So I have tricks. to say,
0: I mean, people may may think this is a real pandemic movie, you know, to be afraid of going outside and and, and trying to make the best of your indoor surroundings or whatever. There there's certainly something timely in that. So some I, I'm sure some reviews will will pick up on that as well. But uh but yeah, I mean it's Joe Wright's done a lot better. Amy Adams has done a lot better. Everybody in this movie has done a lot better, but it's not a career-ending disaster, I would think,
1: because I would you don't say that Amy Adams though. actually gives a good performance. Although it, it, it that the idea of 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 she's playing yet another uh, addicted person that, that she might give that a rest. after a
0: Hillbilly Elegy, it's, it's not sharp a great objects. thing. To, yep, exactly. Yeah yeah, 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 but I mean, especially after Hillbilly Elegy, those two movies being you know pretty mediocre, and and playing that kind of damaged character, it's like we want to see her maybe. A little bit more
1: time to to glam up but (laughs) no I liked her performance and I thought she was very good I don't think she did anything wrong Carrie Oldman was fine he was in a bit part um I figured it out I I totally figured it out and it wasn't like I was and and Wyatt Russell the the hot man du jour uh you know happy to look at him anytime but um he's got
0: some good angles
1: But, but the, but the, but the problem is that you're never frightened. You're never nervous. You're not the slightest bit scared ever.
0: Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of a dull experience overall. And I, I never really felt the tension or the the mystery or anything like that. It was just like, you know, pretty pictures more or, Nothing or less. Nothing you could do but, to
1: jazz it up really. And, yeah. But I bet it does better at Netflix than it would do yeah. otherwise. It's not going to get better reviews. But um, it's obviously, it was intent, the intention was for it to be an awards picture, which it was never gonna be. not
0: happening. Well, let me tell you about another Netflix movie coming out this week that's much better. And one that I don't expect to be a major awards picture, but I do think is a serious summer movie experience and that's Army of the Dead. Zack Snyder's uh, film that's basically a franchise starter from the get-go because before it even was finished, Netflix greenlit a prequel feature as well as an anime prequel. So they've got this huge world already assembled. So obviously the thing has to deliver on some level to justify that heft. And it it does. It's a really good time. I mean, I'm not like one of these Snyder fanboys who swears by the Snyder cut of Justice League or something. But he really did do... I mean, he's a cinematographer. He and his wife produced. He co-wrote it. He really did build a fascinating variation on the zombie takeover story because it's basically an oceans movie in a zombie setting with dave Bautista leading these mercenaries into a walled vegas that's been totally overtaken by zombies to get a bunch of million dollars out of a vault and it's like their last chance to to get a payday for all these people because they're mercenaries who originally trapped the zombies in Vegas, so they didn't take over the world and they never got a payday. So it has that same sort of, it's like a man on a mission movie. It's, it's it, but it's also a good sort of horror action thriller of sorts. And so I, um,
1: if I don't go to the movie theater, so it opens Friday the 14th, right? it's in, in some theaters. theaters now though it's oh, in the so Paris it opened, theater you know so t- t- all right so it, and, and you could see it in theaters and then in in, in another two weeks it's on uh, Netflix
0: exactly so th- this is kind of fascinating because I've talked to a couple people who are like I really want to go see this in theaters and it will work that way it's, it's long like a lot of summer movies it's over two hours um, but it's but it's a big screen action movie and if it was done on a reasonable budget because it's all one location you can't tell there's a lot of effects and stuff big helicopter explosions a helicopter pilot played by a deadpan tignataro is a nice touch <laughs> um, and uh, and lots of you they, know, stuck her in. And stuff. they stuck her in they, yeah digitally? they worked her in digitally because chris to Haley, replace obviously, a tainted figure yes, yeah he was cancelled so Yeah, but no, but it's a big screen movie experience, and the zombies—it's called Army of the Dead because these are these are thinking zombies, and they have a a sort of a king of sorts who is more kind of like the Army of the Dead, or excuse me, more like the uh, uh, Army of Darkness type of zombie-ish character, which is in some ways scarier because we've seen the the you know kind of stupid. They're usually kind of mindless.
1: Yeah, the, the usual zombie doesn't have thinking ability it's yeah. more instinctive
0: yeah i mean look the movie is ridiculous it's got a lot of ham-fisted pulpy stuff about it but it's also it it looks great it moves well and well, uh it's Snyder has always
1: been visually sophisticated yeah. he's, it's, he's, it's all about the surface that yeah. was often at, the script is you know, not amazing. A it's yeah. not
0: about it, but, but it is a good it is a good world. I mean, I, 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 as I was watching it, I, you could tell that they thought through the entire backdrop. In fact, the opening credit sequence, if you look at reviews, many reviews single this out as the best part of the movie. The opening credits of this movie are basically like a movie unto the to itself. It's what some people would put. In an entire movie like that the actual zombie breakout and how people found out about it and reacted to it. He summarizes all of that without a single line of dialogue over the credits, and then it gets into the real story, real story, which is impressive. So
1: it sort of sounds like the Mitchells versus the Machines, okay. which which uh, I there love. is a
0: family dynamic. It, that to was it.
1: the robot a- apocalypse uh, with the family fighting, saving yeah, the world it's an interesting the robot point. apocalypse.
0: It's a common, it's a common you know escapist trope, right? The world is ending, and we have to come together to uh, to set things right. So Netflix has both ends of the equation: the family friendly version and the R rated version. This there one is very R rated. There's a zombie I, tiger. My God, based on Carol Baskin's Tigers, by the way, who really wreaks some bloody havoc towards the end. So I'm looking
1: forward to it. I I will watch it eventually. But um, the other movie that's opening this weekend, which is so it'll be in theaters for a week before going to P.V.O.D. uh, from Magnet releasing is um, the Mads Mikkelsen feature, Riders of Justice, which is directed by um, Danish writers usual screenwriter with Susanna Beer, Anders Thomas Jensen. So he did A Better World, which was Oscar winner. And he, he did the, the early Mickelson uh, movie that, that, you know, the, uh, after the wedding, you know, and and, the, uh, the, and Open Hearts. Yeah. So he's, he's mm-hmm. been in that world. But what, what so I interviewed Mads. This movie's really great. He, he is super violent, super scary. He's a soldier who uh, basically has PTSD or something, and his wife is killed in, a, in, a, in an accident, a, an explosion in, in, a, in a train. And the police aren't suspicious of anything in particular, but these three geeky guys find out that there's a connection and, uh, to this uh, gang called the Riders of Justice, and they go to Mads and they tell him this, and he freaks out and goes on a mission of revenge to, to, to avenge the death of his wife. And, and they help him and they all come together in this weird uh, family. He has a daughter, a teenage daughter. He's totally incapable of dealing with his emotions or dealing with her. And he goes out and wrecks a lot of havoc with these guys, teaches them how to shoot um, and kill. And it, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, setup. And it's actually very funny as well as scary. And Mads pulls it off. So that you actually care about this guy who's killing Look, people right and left when does meds
0: not pull it off i mean he's one of the one of the great working he's actors one of the best now. actors we have in terms of his versatility i mean it's like him and vigo mortensen you see them in something you're like how did they do that after that other role that was a totally different kind of a thing they just have that gene so it's remarkable, especially with another round, you know, still being in the conversation to some degree, for him to follow it up with something like this. It sounds so fundamentally different, but still Danish. I mean, it's nice that he's sort of he's he sticking back to the home forth. country. Yeah,
1: he says that what happens is that he actually puts in a lot of effort on something like another round or or the Riders of Justice in, into these complicated, dramatic roles, and they're draining. And then he goes off and plays a villain you know, he's going to be in the Indiana Jones. (laughs) He's, he's in the new Fantastic Beast. He replaced uh, Johnny Depp, you know, with the Mm -hmm. bleached hair and everything he's in. And he's in, you know, he played Le Chiffre in uh, Casino Royale. Um, and, and, and he's also, uh, he's also doing, um, there's another one. Oh yeah. So, so James Mangold and he, or, you know, he'll be with, with, um, uh harrison ford and and phoebe waller bridge uh so so it's crazy he's he's in he's like in all the, oh he said he's doing doctor strange for marvel so he's in all these different franchises and he just tosses off the villains and then goes and does a danish movie and when he, he did specify that when he did arctic which i liked a lot he was really great in that as a heroic character and he says, which. He yeah, would love sense. to play uh, a non uh, villain some in an American movie someday. Yeah,
0: I mean that it's it's great that he can sort of sneak around a bit to some degree and try different things because eventually somebody like him, you know, it's like he could land in some major American movie in a totally different kind of role and the conversation about Mads Mickelson could start over all over again. People will rediscover his amazingness. It's like each time he shows up in something, people are still kind of appreciating him all over again. You know, he doesn't become a one trick pony. And he was in Hannibal,
1: obviously, for, yeah, for three seasons. So he's much better known base. as a result yeah, of that.
0: Exactly. Exactly. By the way, speaking of Arctic, I saw Stowaway, which uh, was the same director, his new film, which is also on Netflix, which is fascinating. Oh,
1: I'll check it out. Is
0: we're, it good're checking out it's it's it It lacks payoff, so I was frustrated by that. I think that it almost felt like they just couldn't figure out how to end the movie and landed on the wrong ending. but the this it's kind of like lifeboat in space. It's like three astronauts are heading to Mars, including Anna Kendrick, and they realize there's a fourth person on board, and they only have enough oxygen on the on the ship for three people. That's so. a good setup really good premise and it was another interesting you know this is a movie it's a netflix production has good special effects but it's all one setting so it's not like a huge world or anything and it still has that feeling of you know it's kind of this this cool sci-fi escapist story it's got some real thrilling moments to it so i would i would check it out it's 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 fascinating It's, it's again it's not it's not totally there, but as a space nut, I, I appreciated the, the hard science aspect of it. Another movie that's opening this week that I would like to recommend that I think is really terrific from start to finish is The Killing of Two Lovers. And this is a movie that Neon is putting out that was at Sundance two years ago. And uh, and they picked it up there. It was kind of buried in the next section. But it's uh, it's a director named Robert Michon. And uh, the star is this guy, Clayne Crawford, who's probably best known for Rectify and... Um, lethal weapon but that was years ago and this is a totally different kind of performance it really is about a guy excuse me it really is about a guy who wants to kill two lovers one of whom is his wife and the other is her new boyfriend and in the first scene you see him in a bedroom with a gun and they're sleeping in a bed and he can't go through with it and the rest of the movie is this sort of portrait of this character's life as he struggles with can he reconcile with his wife? Is she going to take him back with their two young children, or has he lost everything? Is is he going to snap? And it was shot in this very small town of Utah, uh, with uh, incredible sort of sense of this like poetic despair. You know, I don't know. I mean, it was just like one of those movies where you think you've seen it before in terms of the the drama in play, but it's so tense the way that it's shot and and the scent, it's like got such a deceptively simple concept you know is this guy going to snap that it just keeps you involved from scene to scene to scene. So I think what happened two years ago when it premiered at Sundance was that Marriage Story was out there. And everybody was comparing it to Marriage. All the reviews mentioned Marriage Story. It's not Marriage Story. This is a thriller. But it's a very involving and emotional thriller. And it keeps you guessing. So I highly recommend checking that one out. It's, It's on VOD as well as some theaters, apparently. So either one of those would work. Where does this leave us, in? What's what's happening next? I guess we just descend deeper into the summer movie season, F9 and Quiet Place and all that
1: stuff. I was on the airplane, right? Because I'm in Maine right now, and the thing that I watched on the plane over you know how you watch something over somebody's shoulder and it's silent, you know? I watched <laughs> the quiet funny. place. It was perfect.
0: In complete <laughs> <was> silence.
1: <laughs> just the
0: rum, the slow rumbling There's of the
1: jet. While they do the, <laughs> the sign language. Wow.
0: Wow. Well, yeah. I hope it's so still I'm looking I'm I am, I'm am
1: primed. I have a screening next week of of Quiet Place, Two, And I got to go to a screening. We talked about that in the hikes before. Uh, so I'm back. I'm looking forward to getting more screening invitations. Please, please. Bring I know. Them.
0: Well, it's nice that now I mean, I have to say the exclusivity of the big screen experience is coming back, at least for on the on the media side. I'm getting more invites where people are saying, you know, this is your opportunity to see the movie right now. We're not sending you a link. Not for small indies, which I don't think even pre-pandemic you had. That, that may luxury. never come back. But no, those but are small think,
1: little screening rooms. Yeah. They must be hurting. Yeah. But I mean,
0: Quiet Place too. Why would you? I mean, it's so clearly designed to be for a big theater experience that way. So I'm glad that that kind of stuff is happening, and um, I look forward to talking about those movies with you next weekend. So All right. see you then.
1: See you later.
0: Bye.